The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. You know, those of you who haven't followed David over these many years, he's really one of the most articulate people in the world, uh, certainly in Hong Kong, on the future um, of Hong Kong, what's going on there, analysis of Hong Kong, and as we all are used to my saying, using data. Uh, to analyze what's going on. So that, I think, is... is Chairman, uh, Chairman Mao once said, right? <laughs> Those who have not done social science research have no right to speak. But David is now, he's, he's professor at uh, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, has done, you know, I've been through this presentation in the last few minutes, and I assure you, it is, it is, you're in for a treat. It's very interesting uh, kind of analysis of what's going on in Hong Kong, kind of the, you know, the, the social science data that's affecting kind of what we see every day in the politics of Hong Kong. But join me in, in welcoming David. Thanks, thanks. So, so basically, you know, the way to look at this is uh, one country, two systems. So we've got the dilemma, uh, which is by itself is not an easy thing to solve. Uh, and then two or even three contending forces, right? So we've got an aspiring democratic society, which we know about 60% of the population of Hong Kong vote regularly democratic. Uh, and I put here suppressed for over 30 years because we know that in 1987, the British did a survey and found out that people in Hong Kong wanted to have more democracy and the Brits buried the survey, right? They never went public with it. So we should talk 30 years. Um, I. This came to my head over the last day. What I'm now thinking of is uh, maybe write a paper called Withholding Acquiescence. So they just that the Hong Kong people will not acquiesce to the pressures from Beijing. Uh, and in many ways, those pressures are to resolve Beijing's anxiety about national security. That Hong Kong, Beijing sees Hong Kong as a threat to its national security, and Hong Kong people do not want to understand that, which is the democratic problem. Um, but the other side is a rising Communist Party-led country, China. You know, we saw it this weekend, right? Highly impatient, uh, which I'll talk a little bit about. And as I said, and I do think overly concerned about threats to its sovereignty and security. Um, and in between, I use the word rapacious. The rapacious business elite that really ignores the social problems. And I think a lot of the stuff that goes on here in Hong Kong is really based on social problems and economic so problems. So go back for one second. Sure. So you, you, you're arguing that the, the hunger for democracy was when the Brits were there, too. Yes. That, that this is not something that's post-97. No. No, no. As we said before, Martin Lee was there before. Right. Uh, uh, you know, um, Frank Ching... Meeting point, 1972, Daya Bay, right? The the first put in the power plant. I mean, these go back to the 70s, right? But and and so it's it's certainly not new. Okay, so contradictory expectations. One, Hong Kongers hoped that that China would become more democratic. That was the comfort about 50 years. Uh, and but for them, the pace of democratization has been too slow. Though I will argue that there has been serious democratization even under 
even under uh, Beijing's, uh, Beijing's rule. On the other side, Beijing thought Hong Kongers would just become more patriotic. Aigua, you know, that they would love the mainland, be glad, and the mainland gives them all kinds of stuff. If you look at the white paper they put out in 2014, it just lists all the, the things that the government has done for Hong Kongers, uh, and the, Beijing believes that that should make the people of Hong Kong more supportive. Um, Beijing hoped that the pan, I think this is very important, the basic law, right? Because one of the big confrontary issues was over the nomination committee, I'll go into it in more detail, how do you select the next chief executive? We just had this election, and the basic law says there should be a nominating committee. That's Beijing's comfort zone, right? That they know that if they can control the nominating committee, they can control the nomination. They can make sure that whoever becomes the leader of Hong Kong is not a threat to their national security, as they define their national security, which may not be what we really is, or we could look at it and say they're, they're overly anxious, right? But nevertheless, that's their perception of their security. Um, uh, and the Democrats refused, the Democratic movement refused to accept the nomination committee and demanded uh, an open, uh, what they called civic nomination. And I think that was a part of the reason that you had this confrontation in 2014. Second issue, identity politics. Uh, Hong Kongers maintain a separate identity. The, they have not become more Chinese, just like Taiwan. So again, there's a lot of similarities between what's going on in Taiwan and what's going on in Hong Kong. Uh, they relate more to the outside world. I'll show that. Beijing accepted them to become more Chinese, uh, but it hasn't happened. Uh, they've made a hostile environment for mainlanders. Uh, the basic view in, in the mainland is uh, Hong Kong doesn't welcome us anymore, uh, all kinds of reasons, some of which I think are quite legitimate. Uh, and now we have a localist, if not an independence movement, but at least a localist movement in Hong Kong, which is very much like in Britain, uh, in a lot of places, uh, also the U.S. to a certain extent, you know, uh, America first kind of attitude. So here's a survey. I hope you can see it. It's not as big as I thought. Um, but you can see that the least identity, right, is the blue being Chinese in Hong Kong. And the most common identity here, right, the most common identity up here is being a Hong Kong. Can you tell us the colors? Because that doesn't seem to work. Just tell us what colors Brown. are what. What's the brown? What is it? The brown. The brown here is, they see themselves as a Hong Konger and a Hong Konger in China. So that's the most Hong Kong, I'm a Hong Kong, I'm Hong Kong Yen, or, you know, uh, I'm a Hong Konger in China. So that's the majority, you may need to buy me a new suit. The majority of people clearly feel themselves to be Hong Kongers or Hong Kongers in, uh, or Chinese in Hong, Hong Konger in China. Right? Not a Chinese in Hong Kong, but a Hong Konger in China. So that's a very strong Hong Kong identity. Right? What, what, what's the time frame on that, please? This goes from 1997 to 2016. I worked hard to keep this data up. Right? I just downloaded this two days ago. Uh, Robert Chung at Hong Kong U is the main pollster now that, every, that you have to rely on. A guy named Michael DeGaulier, who used to do this, an American at Baptist has retired, and so I, he can't keep up past 2014. So his data, so now I have to go to, to if I want to keep up. 
So here's the same kind of thing. And look at this. Hong Kong Yen, right? I'm a Hong Kong person by age. So here again, you got to look at the, dem the demographics and the age, the generational uh, uh, differences, right? So here you have 60 to 88, you know, Chinese Hong Konger, Chinese, right? So, but this is the group. This is, this is ma fun, right? Ho dai ma fun, right? This is, you know, chandada ma fun, big problem, right? So, preference for identity, these are, again, these are the Goyer surveys, um, so this would be 2014, what do young people feel most? They're Hong Kongers. Hong Kong is a pluralistic and international society. The Hong Kong that you think of, right? That's the majority, and it decreases as you get older, and China's historical and cultural identity. Young people don't think about that, and, there's n and, and the China's identity, as ruled by the CCP, isn't even on here for this group, right? So you can see the trends, right? Under 40s much prefer to see Hong Kong as a pluralistic and international, and those are the people who are thinking of leaving as China become, as Hong Kong becomes more Chinese, right, for them. Uh, third contradiction that I'll show you here, so I different, just sort of think about Hong Kong, one country, two systems, and the way to differentiate is very clearly on the left. One country here, two systems, thank you for telling me this isn't working. I can, well, the circle, it works when you turn the circle. Yeah, it's okay. So here we are back about 2013, 2014. We've had several attempts to push Hong Kong more this way. The national security law of 2003, the people pushed back against it. National education, 2011, 2012, people pushed back. So pretty much, I would say Hong Kong was sitting over here much closer to the two systems. Not much change from 1997. And then, and when Beijing tried, people pushed back. Then the white paper, which I'll go into a little bit of detail, comes along, and that starts to move Hong Kong this way. Then, for, then you have the umbrella movement and the post-umbrella movement. It moves back this way, and then it relaxed a bit. And then we have the oath saga, the people who were elected, the localists who were elected, who refused to take the oath properly, and so that allowed the the national the national the na the NPC the standing committee of the National People's Congress on its own for the first time on its own to intervene in a legal affair in Hong Kong. It was not asked; it jumped in, and that's the first time that that happened. So, in that sense, there is some risk to the uh, the rule of law. Okay, so I need to go through here. Well, just basically the majority of Hong Kongers re resist any manifestation of one country from the outside. Jan, is there a problem? No, I just... Just want to talk yeah, to my yeah, wife? Yeah, just want to talk to I, I have to tell my so, students... So the last chart I didn't understand. That's this? That, yeah. You don't understand it? No, it's not all the time. I know. What don't you... Yeah. I'm sorry? It's not clear what that tells yeah, yeah. us. Yeah, we don't know what that So, means. where's Hong Kong situated? So you guys, all right, you, you don't have a master's, to, a PhD in political science, right? So the world is often continuum, right? So where is Hong Kong on this? China wants one country, Hong Kongers want two systems. Iguo right? 
So where does Hong Kong sit? Right? That's a big debate. Where is Hong... Is this is, a time continuum? There's no time. This is just... I mean, it is over time. I could do it over time, this year by year. But this is, this is where it was before. So here's a time lag. Yeah. So be, 201... Let's say 2014. Before the summer of 2014, it was over here. Then along comes the white paper, which pushes Hong Kong closer to one country, away from two systems, right? Then you get the umbrella movement, which is a reaction, right? And you would think then that's a reaction for the two systems. The response to the umbrella movement was to talk about introducing national security, introducing national education. Right, Tong Chi Hua made a, sp- a big speech about it's time now to have uh, introduced the national security law, right? And so that was an effort to pull Hong Kong closer to one country, right? And then it sort of sat there, and then the, you'll see in, in truth that there was an election. The pro-democratic forces, the localist forces did very well, so it should have pushed it back to two systems, and then what you get is an intervention against the candidates, the elect, the people elected to the legislature, who basically use the word China, slander China, and get two of them get kicked out, and Beijing directly intervenes into Hong Kong politics, pulling the place closer to one country. So, I mean, when China's, when Hong Kong's no longer Hong Kong, it's going to be over here, right? This is the Hong Kong that. Steve lived in that we we know of, right? Where it's the the it was much closer to the two systems. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks. My wife wants me to put dates on it. What do the horizontal lines mean? The one, two, three, four. Oh, just horizontal lines. Just it's movement. It's movement along this continuum. Right, so here's pressure. It could go this way. It could go this way. So the red doesn't. The horizontal. You mean these lines? No, the horizontal. The, 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 the green and the uh, and the dark. Just that it can move both ways. Right. What's the red line? Um, can can I can I get you enrolled in a course? <laughs> you know, what's the red line and the green line? This crowd does not worry like this photo. I'm sorry? This, this crowd does not like this figure. Yeah, so let's Why move, really on. move on. Let's move on. <laughs> let's move on. Okay. So, here's the white paper, right? So in 2014, the summer of 2014, Beijing, after several years of preparation, puts out a white paper. And it really does attack the idea of two systems. Uh, it's very one-country-ish. Is that okay? Can I? All right, so forgetting that. It's very one-country-ish. Um, it, uh, it says that it, it struck at the dominant perception that Hong Kong that Beijing was legally bound by the Basic Law and the Joint Declaration uh, on Hong Kong uh, to maintain the high degree of autonomy in two systems for 50 years. It argued that Hong Kong's high degree of autonomy was granted at the bequest of Beijing's parliament, not that it was an international treaty registered at the UN, which it is, right? Um, The judicial system could be limited if Beijing decided to do it. It called Hong Kong judges public employees whose first loyalty was to the state, right? Uh, uh, Hundreds of uh, lawyers protested, judges protested. This was a really stupid thing, the the white paper. And I know that people in the Maliesua, 
the, the Marxism-Leninism Institute at People's University were involved in writing it. That's a really good group, right? To, to, they know a lot about Hong Kong, right? Now, different views on national security, right? This is just a list of what the mainland worries about, right? So we know that, you know, they tried to pass the national security law in 2003. Badly done, a bad effort, poorly organized by Tong and by um, Regina Ip, badly organized, uh, and it put people in the streets. 500,000, 600,000 people in protest against it, and the head of the liaison office in Hong Kong said that all marchers received $100 uh, from the American consulate. The, the U.S. Consul General said, I only wish I had that much money. How, how long after that did CH then step down? The year after. It was a year after. Fall. So there was a, another protest in 2003, 2004, and then in the fall of 2004, he steps down. Right? The pivot scares Beijing. Pivot means, you know, now the pivot's not happening anymore, but in those, then it was clearly that Obama was moving back to Asia with a focus on Asia, and therefore Hong Kong would be seen as a place to undermine China. As I said here, one of four peripheral territories, uh, now five with the South China Sea, and uh, in fact, once China starts to use the terms sovereignty, national security, as democracy in Hong Kong is a question of that, then the debate's over. So here's some quotes. Joe Nan. So I give the same talk, by the way, in, Hong, in mainland. I go into the mainland whenever I can. I've given it at Fudan. I've given it to the Law Society in Beijing. I do it in Chinese, right? Um, uh, and I, but I don't have the names. So it would say, Mo Mo Lingdao, right? Some leader. Right, says, but I can put it, I switched it, right? So Joe Nan, former director of Xinhua, said that, that local and overseas forces who are anti-China have joined together to seize power in Hong Kong. The central issue in Hong Kong is no longer true or fake democracy. It is a political contest between China and the Western powers who pose a direct threat to China's sovereign rule over Hong Kong and its national security. So you may think that this is baloney, but this is how they see it. And you've got to work within the context of how they see it. Beijing is reportedly categorized, this is the, from China Daily, uh, discussions over constitutional reform as a battle over the governance of the territory, but it really is a campaign for the central government to defend its sovereignty. Zhang Dejiang called a meeting in two, early 2014 after uh, the Betty Tai had announced there was going to be an Occupy Central movement, and he reportedly, according to uh, 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 Jiang Ning, so sorry, that's, don't have that. So that's a Hong Kong magazine that slanders, quote unquote, slanders the mainland. Um, in spring, he, he told uh, all the government officials, he called a meeting and told them that they had to fi fight foreign interests who use Hong Kong to undermine Chinese authority. And, quote, international political forces and anti-CCP international deeply involved at the political, organizational, societal, and community levels in transforming Hong Kong into an anti-CCP and anti-China region and making Hong Kong the battlefield of international political power. And I know that every mainland organization, every intelligence organization from the mainland and in Hong Kong had to find proof that the West was up to it. Right? And I know that the U.S. military attache's home was ransacked at that time. 
because they wanted to find proof that he was up to something. Uh, but he has he, diplomatic privileges and immunity. Yes. And they went in and they ransacked his yes. home? Said it was thieves, I assume. He never reported it. He knew. I mean, I he never to him. reported it? I don't think he reported it. Well, he didn't tell me he didn't report it. Anyway, because he, he thought he knew who did it. <laughs> right? Now... You'd think the Hong Kong police might be interested in that. and in Maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe he just didn't tell me that he reported it. Anyway, we have a former Hong Kong policeman here, so he'll comment there. <laughs> okay, good. Um, now, on the other side, I think that again, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a, a middle of the rotor on all this stuff, just to take stake my turf, right? So I think that the pan-democratic forces just don't understand that they are perceived as a threat to national security and national sovereignty. Um, I interviewed Audrey Yu. Uh, for a, a project I was working on, and she could not understand how anything she could do could be perceived legal, intelligently as a threat to national security. So when I said to her something like, okay, let's say Wu Kaisi wants to come to Hong Kong, right? And the Hong Kong government said, the Hong Kong police say no, and it comes up to you, what are you going to say? I said, you're going to say yes. He should be able to come in. That would be seen as by the mainland as a threat to national security. If there's an issue of, you know, mainland versus outside, you'll go outside. Mainland would want to see you take mainland's position, right? And even we just had this last week, right? Travels by Anson, Martin Lee, and I put in now Nathan Law, one of the, the, uh, the localists. <laughs> they go to the U.S., uh, they go to Canada, um, they talk to the I Hate China Committee in, in Congress, um, <laughs> and they encourage foreign pressure, right, which just reinforces the belief that these people are a threat to Chinese national security, right? Political reform, the package. Steve and I were talking about this before, that the reason you had the students in the street was that the mainland government came out with a threshold for getting through the nomination committee. Everybody know the idea, Any, the nomination committee, right? There was a teaming way, right? And there was a menka, there was a threshold that you had to get. And what was going to be the threshold? I was asked my opinion, I said 15%. Right? They said 50%, which meant that no Democrat could get through. Very clearly, right? So once that happened, the students took to the street. And one of the reasons Beijing does that, because 60% of the adults, 2.5 million people in Hong Kong, support democracy. And if they could put forth their own candidate and then vote themselves, you would at least get Chen Shui-bian you would get a, you know, a very uh, democratic person as the chief executive of Hong Kong, which the mainland is not willing to accept. Um, so, so, and the Hong Kongers see the 831 system, and this links together the economics and the politics, right? You know, the, the economics, the chief executives make decisions that largely support the business leaders of Hong Kong. They support the tycoons. What, what's the 831 system? Uh, that's August 31st. That's, that's fine. Cool. Um, August 30, much better than, <laughs> than Jan. Um, so August 31st uh, system was the system that said 50%. You had to have 50%, which meant that whoever was going to get nominated was going to be a pro-Beijing person, right? So, um, and, and I just love this. So the Chinese, the mainland leaders, where it's a CG, a central government, because I live in China, 
right? Beijing, Hong Kong is part of China, so I often refer to Beijing either for you guys, I put some BJs, um, but I often, whenever I talk about this, it's Zhongyang Zhengfu, right? It's the central government. They said Hong Kong is a capitalist society, it should be run by capitalists, right? Um, and so here the method for electing is very important for the social and economic problems, right? Uh, and so after this announcement, Hong Kongers started to blame the central government for the problems. Before that, they would blame them more locally. But now they start to think that the central government is really a problem. Um, so let me, I want to, no, I right, will still stick with the economic issues. So here's some of the economic issues. No increase in incomes since 1997, right? 125 to 150 mainlanders come in every day under an agreement. In 20 years, that's a million people. Some of them are talented. Some are family reunification. I think they're getting more and more talented, but many of them are also working class, and they live in the in the poor areas. When you say come in, you mean come legally in allowed, areas? legally allowed to migrate. It's an agreement every day, 125 to 100. The, 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 the limit is 150. So you've got a million. Why does Hong Kong's population keep growing? It ain't because Hong Kongers are having kids, trust me. Right, one of the lowest population growth rates in the world. It's mainlanders coming in from the mainland, uh, uh, right? So that's a million people. Most young people will never own a home, right? Uh, I, I won't say it. I'll keep my. I'll say. It, I'll say it when the camera's off. Um, no retirement system, right? No retirement system, but billions spent on linking Hong Kong to the mainland. High-speed rail, bridges, all this stuff. But these kids take a look around and they know their dad's never going to have, their parents are never going to have a good retirement system, right? They can't get a flat, their salaries haven't gone up, and here's the Hong Kong government spending billions to link. Now, there's nothing wrong with linking because without that link, there's no future for Hong Kong. Uh, so I'm not saying that there's any, you know, it's not, I'm just laying it out there, right? La rapidly growing inequality, one of the highest in inequitable societies in the world. Um, and Beijing under that white paper, in the white paper, they even say how wonderful Beijing was in helping Hong Kong people overcome SARS in 2003, right? Why did we have SARS? Why did my wife say, let's get the hell out of here, right? Why did we have SARS? We had SARS because it came out of Guangdong, right? And Zhang Dejiang knew about it and didn't do anything about it. You could have got me a cookie. Um, it's okay. Large numbers of mainland tourists did not improve uh, the livelihood of uh, the average Hong Konger. So which problems? So this is 2014, right? This is 2014, what's the main problems? Um, right there, January. Uh, here's the blue affordable housing property market, right? And the red, still, competence of chief executive, competence of civil servants, fair judiciary, autonomy, freedom of press. So politics was there. Thank you very much, Mark. You're very welcome. Uh, so here, politics was big, but economics was also a problem, right? Grads' incomes, yearly inflation rate and fresh incomes, fresh salaries, right? So here's from 2008 to 2018, right? Minimal, 2014, minimal increase. Uh, here's inflation. If you graduate from Hong Kong U, you're okay. Poly U, you're okay. Don't go to Baptist University, right? So here's basically over 20 years, almost for lots of people, no major salary increases, right? 
Uh, information flows, does the central government know? I don't know. I don't know what they know. You know, people often don't tell the emperor what they think the emperor doesn't want to hear. Right? So I gave a talk to the Law Society, and I brought with these, this PPT, and I gave them the PPT, and I said, and the, the printout, and I said, please give it <laughs> to, the, to the government. Make sure that they know. But they've got lots of people collecting lots of information. But some people say, I didn't know that Michael DeGolier had done this data set that I could go online at HKBU, you know, Baptist University, and see all this stuff. So um, you've read that by the time I got there. Oh, but this is important. Totally misjudged. Now, that's a real problem. The liaison office totally misjudges and often does not understand Hong Kong, even though lots of people who work there, you know, have lived in Guangdong, right? They predicted 30 to 50,000 people in 2003. They were off by only a factor of 10, right? Just jiggling at a zero, right? That's all you have to do. Um, support for Occupy Central, age, again, right? You can see. Young people strongly support and supported Occupy Central. Older people did not support it. So a huge gap. Um, again, going back to that terrible slide that I had, I apologize. I will spend a lot of time working on that one. Um, that the effort to move it closer to one country, just so you, uh, some of the things. They talked about pro-mainland forces, the need for enlightenment of the students. In the mainland, they call that Sisyang Gai Zhao, right? Uh, thought reform. In Hong Kong, when they tried to do the education, national education, people called it Sinao, right? Brainwashing, right? That's the Hong Kong perception of national education, right? So that's reinforcing that kind of thing. Um, but it, it quieted down uh, after, uh, there was really no major punishment after Occupy Central for the people of Hong Kong. Beijing was very calm in its response to that. It only got upset when the uh, independence movement started to become more widespread. So here's the press freedom table, right? I've just put this together. Um, so the question is, is press freedom declining? And here you can see uh, this is people who were surveyed and they were asked to rank from zero as no freedom, 10 to full freedom of the press. And so as of 1997, we were at 7.15 uh, from the people who were surveyed. So it's gone down about uh, 0.8, right? Not a crisis. So again, is the freedom of press, you asked me, is it a free society? Well, this is under Britain. Right? This is the freedom of press ranking under the Brits. So, yes, it's declined. But is it gone? Not at all. Right? And there's a, even after 2013, even after Occupy Central, right? These are the journalists' views, these are the citizens' views. Even up, up, more upbeat. And, and that's asking just citizens of Hong Kong. Right. That's just a poll. Right. That's not asking the global pen you know, the, the associations to make a comment. This is what people perceive, right? Now, why do I think they missed a golden opportunity? Okay, so here's, again, I'm sorry, this is a class in political science, right? So imagine, and imagine that the, 
there's two camps in Hong Kong, right? So about 50, this is the people's attitudes, the percentage of people. So here is pro-democracy, and here is pro-government, pro-Beijing over here. So there's the two camps. So I would say about 55%, actually, in the last election it was 58%, voted and vote and have consistently voted pro-democracy in the legislative elections, right? And about 35% are pro-government or pro-Beijing, and I put in here 10% who aren't quite sure where they want to be, right? Now, the way the election was set up with the 831, the 50% threshold, meant that when the election, this was the program that Beijing put forward in August of, of uh, 2014, if, if it had gone forward, we would have had an election where probably what would have happened is you would have had two candidates from the pro-Beijing camp, right? They would have been the two people, you know, probably Regina Yip, uh, maybe Kerry, uh, I'm not sure some people think that John Zung wouldn't have gotten through uh, a nomination committee of 50%. Uh, he was the other candidate. Anyway, but you've got, so these two people run against each other, but if they want to win, it's not this group that they have to win over. It's this group that they have to win over. And how do you win over this group? You moderate. You move to the middle. Right? People are rational. Candidates are rational. They want to win. And the only way to win, so the decision, the outcome of that election of two, I call this, I call this Iranian democracy, right? The mullahs decide which clerics can run, and then everybody gets the right to vote. So what we would have had was Iranian democracy in Hong Kong. But it's better than no democracy, right? And from an American perspective, you know, you guys, I'm a Canadian, so didn't mention that. So, so even though I'm a member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, right? But, but um, what you get, you would have gotten is a, a much more democratic process and probably people who would have had to speak clearly to the social and economic problems of Hong Kong and saying what they would do to solve those. Now, we still got that, but still, it would have been much more competitive, much more open, you would have had, you know, and everybody would have had the chance to vote. Would have been fun. Again, problems though, right? So problems, the booksellers, right? As you know, that's a real problem on one country, two systems, because uh, a guy who committed an offense in, a committed, did an action in Hong Kong that is legal in Hong Kong, was arrested in Hong Kong and taken across the border and basically treated as if he had committed an offense in China. Arrested? It's not the word I would use. Kidnapped. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's fine. Okay? Um, now, it's worth remembering that those guys made a mistake, as far as I'm concerned, and their mistake was they were trying to sell books in China which meant that they were actually doing something that was illegal by Chinese law, even though they were doing it from Hong Kong. It wasn't just that they were publishing books and having Hong Kong, uh, mainland people buy them at the airport and bring them back, but we now know that they were trying to ship them into China. So again, one country, two systems, they were muddying it a little bit themselves. But, but it's, still... It's legal for 
the Public Security Bureau to come, if that is true, you're not suggesting it's legal for the Public Security Bureau to, to come, come into, into Hong Kong, Kong and no. take them back to China. Not at all. Right. So if one looks at the violation, the violation is much more serious on the, on the Absolutely. CG I'm side just, than I'm, on the correct. seller side. Correct. I'm just saying there's a little bit there, right? Um, now, just remember, you know, one of the things that everybody got upset as well was that the, the Public Security Bureau went out and arrested people in Thailand, right? And then kidnapped them and brought them back. But American government would never do that, right? They'd never arrest people, but these are terrorists versus booksellers, so it's okay, right? So then you have, so, so then everything goes along, sort of calms down, and the, so the Democrats turned down this choice, and they were very excited about their ability to do it, right? They were really pleased that they could hang together and have 27 members of the legislature and deny the two-thirds majority for the, for the legislature to pass this package, right? So then we went forward. Uh, we were going to go forward to an election, which we had a couple weeks ago, where Kerry won, where it was just, you know, it was, a, a nomin it was just a selection committee rather than a real election committee. But one of the reasons that the Democrats said that they didn't want to do accept that deal was that they felt that they would get beaten up in the subsequent LegCo election, right? In the legislature, that if they had accepted the deal, they would have lost their political base, the Democratic Party, the Civic Party. They felt they would lose their Democratic base, and therefore they didn't accept it. And in fact, by not accepting it, they did very well. So again, interestingly, interestingly enough, September, last September, the Democrats did very well in the legislative election, much better than people had thought. People had thought that after Occupy Central, they were finished. And in fact, it's not true. They did very well. Uh, record turnout, 58% of the people voted Democratic. Uh, they got more geographic seats. They got more functional constituency, the pro-government sort of the controlled, right? They got one more functional constituency seat. And in some of the functional constituencies, the Democratic people, lawyers, or the accountants, just guys you've worked with, all, you know, but they're now in their 30s, they're saying, we're going to get involved in this. We don't like this. We're going to vote, right? And we're going to vote for Democratic candidates. And this is exactly what Benny Tai said that they were up to when they started Occupy Central, which was to awaken Hong Kong society, right? And in fact, they did it. Unfortunately, at the same time, we get the emergence of a localism, right? A localist says, secondary school, oh, well, localists privilege Hong Kong interests over national interests without declaring independence, is how I would define localists. But there's a, a kind of racial overtone to it. There's an anti-mainland. There's we're Hong Kong. We're better than the mainlanders. Um, there's, this is a nativist movement that's going all around the world, right? So it's not unique to Hong Kong, right? But it's become very strong in Hong Kong. Some people would say that among younger people, 40% of young people are nativist, are localist. Right? They want, and what's interesting is they don't care what goes on in China. Let the party do what it wants. 
Arrest people. Do what you want. We don't care. Just leave us alone. Right? Which is very different than the old Democratic parties. Right? That Martin Lee and Sita Waugh, all those guys were busy June 4th, right? Democratic movement in the mainland. That's what we're here for. The young people don't care. Let the mainland be the mainland. Just leave us alone. Right? Um, anyway, I'll just... And they're trying to spread more of that information in the schools, and the schools, the, the Secretary of Education is trying to stop them from doing that. Uh, survey. CUHK, Chinese University of Hong Kong, July 2016, 69.6% said one country, two systems should be extended after 2047. So again, uh, that's still a localist perspective. We want to stay separate. We want our own system, keep it alive, right? Here, 17.4 strongly support or support Hong Kong becoming independent after that date. And you don't think the mainland gets anxious about this, right? If they could do a survey in Xinjiang or Tibet, right? Uh, and we know in Taiwan, probably 80% of the people in Taiwan, if, the, if there weren't 1,300 missiles pointed at the mainland, at, at the island, they'd opt out too, right? 22.9% were ambivalent and 57% were somewhat strongly opposed. Among those aged 15 to 24, nearly 40% demanded independence, right? So again, there, where's the tension? There's the tension, right? What I call victory squandered, so the Democrats did well. Young people, the, what were called the um, uh, umbrella soldiers, people who had taken part in the umbrella movement in, in Occupy Central, they got elected to the legislature, right? Six of them got elected to the legislature, and two of them were idiots, right? And they insult China. I mean, what government would allow that anyway? I mean, no one in the U.S. Congress is going to stand up and say, you know, I really think we should be part of Canada. <laughs> or, you know, damn it, we should have stayed part of Spain, right? Or British, right? Uh, you can't do that. So, as I say, waving the red flag in front of Beijing. But the problem with it is that it gave the possibility for Beijing to intervene. The politics of it, I don't need to go into detail. CY tried to do something about it. It just, over time, it would have taken a lot of, there's a debate over whether or not they should, but in the end, the national, the standing committee of the NPC, which is the real court of final appeal in Hong Kong, right? Hong Kong has a court of almost final appeal, right? But the real court of final appeal is in Beijing. And they intervened, clearly intervened. And they ruled that they made a special new ruling about how you should have taken the oath. It's retrogressive, right? It's previous four other people are being investigated for many years. Long hair for many years never said the oath the way he should have said it. And now he's under some questioning, right? So that just gave the great chance to them. So, yeah, so... But, but one thing, Steve had asked me this before, I think one of the things that we're seeing, one of the new trends, is what I would call counter-mobilization. So, for example, this year, July 1st, right, famous for July 1st protests, right? It's the birth of the Communist Party, it's the day of the transition, but it also has become, because of the opposition to C.H. Tong uh, back in 98, 99, it has become, particularly 2003, it has become the day of protest the major day of protest. 
So what has now happened? A pro-Beijing, pro-government, pro-20th anniversary handover group is now being given Victoria Park for the July 1st, celebrate July 1st handover. So it's a kind of counter-mobilization which we're seeing, which we haven't seen before, right? So we now have, and I think this is one of the trends that we'll see, we'll see that the, the United Front strategy in Hong Kong will become more widely used, right? That people will be mobilized to take to the streets against, I mean, it already started in Occupy Central and in Mongkok, it got nasty, right? It didn't get nasty in, in Admiralty, but uh, now, you know, this, th these people will be, and the sign says, punish, you know, severely punish uh, uh, independence LegCo members, and here's the picture of, uh, of the, the people. Hong Kong's future, 60-40, 70-30 for negative, I'd go 60-40, I'd say. Why? Increased radicalization, stronger independence, right? Beijing will intensify pressure. I think they're very concerned. Uh, I think the, the expression of the frog in the, in the pot, not noticing as the water keeps getting hotter and hotter, the democratic movement may find that. Um, Beijing... You know, we I go in and I say to you know to people in China, come on, to the intellectuals at the universities where I give this talk, I say, come on, put some pressure on your government. You guys misunderstand Hong Kong. You're making these mistakes. You're making it worse. You know, back off. Be patient. Take it easy, right? But the independence movement is going to make that just a lot harder, right? Just a lot harder. Um, uh, Right, and this radicalization of youth, thinking of leaving, 40% of Hong Kongers surveyed they'd like to leave. Right? That's huge. Um, percentages uptick, right? 8.6% uh, in the last year, between 2015 and 2016. US, Australia, Canada, those are the main places that they want to go. Right? Positive stuff. But what was the immigration annually in the... In the 1994 was the peak and year. And what was it, yes. Uh, to Canada, it was 44,000. Yeah. And, to the, and that doesn't include those coming to the United States. I don't know. Elsewhere. I just, as a Canadian who, yeah. who's watched this... I look at those numbers, that's de minimis. Small. I remember Because they can't get out. When I was running a company, I, I, we used to have you know, 5 10% of our people Immigrating annually. Right, after 89. Right. Exactly. I've, you, 1990, we just, 91, 92. The English language capability in Hong Kong just disappeared. Right? Just disappeared. If you look at the secretaries, uh, even the sec, you know, secretaries in companies, the, the women had good English and they're all in Australia. So this is quite small. But it's hard because a lot of these are young, these are, they can't get out. Right? It's the, it's the, the, the anybody who's I mean, there are a million Hong Kongers who have foreign passports, right? Those guys are gone. The people who went out after 89, they're gone. I'm answering questions already. We're already into the Q&A <laughs> part in case you hadn't noticed. Um, so they're gone. They have, you know, they've got their passport. Those, are those people leaving, many, those people leaving no, would not count as emigrants. They came, many, most came back. Right. But most, if those people... They pe got foreign 
correct, Steve. Citizenship. But those and would not be counted. They live in Hong Kong. Right, but they already are foreign citizens. So I suspect not that if true. they leave. Not true. What? The government doesn't know that many of them have got foreign passports. Which government? The Hong Kong government? Yeah. I assume you're the police. <laughs> He's the Hong Kong representative right. in, in this area. That's good. The Hong Kong government. That's great. Okay, but but still, the eight percent or the seven thousand would be, I well, okay. I, my assumption is that those are not including the people who are already holding foreign passports, right? And there's a million people who hold a foreign passport. I, I mean, I can't go in. I belong to a health club. I say hi, Howard, to somebody who's a Hong Konger. I say hi. And they say, where are you from? Toronto. Oh, yeah, my cousin's there. My mother's there. I spent seven years there. I worked there, Vancouver, right? And if I were American, I'd hear the same thing, too. Right? Anyway, um, positive. I think a lot of stuff, the next five years, Carrie Lamb's got her work cut out. Uh, but hopefully, she may be up to it. She's got some degree of independence in the, in the election. She showed some degree of independence, some backbone. Uh, in comments with CY, uh, uh, I, you know, I think the pandemic. I think the, the pandemic should take the, to, should say the, to 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 Beijing. All right, let's rethink this deal. But I've already been told by the head of the legal affairs office in the liaison office in Hong Kong that it's not happening in the next five years. That's why Kerry never mentioned it in her campaign. She was basically told no democratic reform in the next five years. So that's a problem, right? Because there's still that aspiration um, uh, for it. Um, but, you know, one of the things is Beijing will continue, the central government continue to squeeze. There's no doubt they will continue to squeeze, largely because of the independence movement. I mean, they were squeezing before, but now they're going to feel even more threatened and even more see it as a national security issue. And... Hong Kong people, though, will continue to push back uh, as they have. And I'll stop there. Why do you call it an independence movement versus a democracy movement? No, because we, these we are people. In other words, we have had people sit in this office who were part of the democracy movement of Hong Kong and say, we are not pro-independence. We are pro-democracy. Right. And to the extent we're characterized as pro-independence, it's damaging because right. we know that the CG won't accept that. That's what Martin Lee would say if he were sitting here. That's what he right? said when he was sitting <laughs> here. I see as Mar did Joshua I see Wong. Yeah, well, Joshua is smarter than the, the people who have become the localists, right? And those, you know... Yeah, they, and they admitted that. They said Joshua's now, you know, on a continuum. Right. He's certainly not the most radical. Right. Like there, there, said. there is a much more, <laughs> there is a much more radical group, right? And that's a, a much more threatening, and that's, I mean, you ask people, you know, do do you support independence? And 17% of, uh, you know, people support, that was a shocking statistic to us. We were shocked to hear that 17% of the people in Hong Kong um, would favor, uh, or no, 17% would want to see it continued, but 40% of young people support independence, duly, right? And th that's, a, that's a problem. I mean, it's just not going to happen. 
uh, it's incendiary, it's a waste of human energy, uh, but, you know, it would be okay if by doing that, Beijing countered by saying, all right, we understand your problems. And we thought, to be quite frank, after the, the umbrella movement, uh, the, the, the utility, one of the utilities of the umbrella movement and all the posters that people put up, a lot of them started to become economic. And so people started to talk about, after Occupy Central, people started to talk about the economic problems and the social problems in Hong Kong. And that's clearly way, what needs to be addressed, right, I think. Uh, and, and we still, you know, that's why, but, but it got lost, right? The message sort of got sent out from, from Admiralty, right? The young people went to Admiralty, the message sort of got sent out, right? These are socioeconomic problems and they're linked to politics, uh, but the basic root is socioeconomic and then that got lost. Um, Do the Democrats now regret that they turned down the... Not in the least. That's why the last fall's LegCo election, I sit with them, Zimmerman, you know? I had lunch with him and the group. Uh, uh, I, I know a lot of these people, right? And, and they're convinced that they made the right decision because they did so well in the September LegCo election last year, which says to them, Hong Kong people support them and that the decision not to take the deal kept them from being punished. Now, I like to say this. When, when, when I heard that the Democrats were very excited about being able to block the, the, the passing of the bill, uh, I went to hear one of them speak, and I won't say who it was, uh, and he was talking about how thrilled they were that the 27 of them could hang together. I mentioned this. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, why, why are you voting this down? What's the advantage? And he said to me, we'll get a better deal next time. And I felt like saying, do you do drugs? You know, you, you know I did drugs when I was 6, 18. You know, do you do drugs now? And, and, and he still would stick by that. But, but every month after that, they turned it down. I kept hearing, oh yeah, now Xi Jinping's the core. Right? He's the, the, the core of the, the Communist Party. Now he'll show that he's really going to give us a better deal on Hong Kong. Right? Jung De Jung's stepping down. He's a hardliner. We're going to get a better deal. I keep hearing this all the time. And I keep wondering where, where, you know, some people say a lot of it's Anson. Some people say that Anson Chan's an incredible optimist. And so she puts out this information about hearing that there's going to be better deals. And I have a very close friend who I have lunch with him on a regular basis, and he keeps saying to me, we keep getting these messages coming, you know? And I say, well, I try and send up the messages too, you know, make a deal, you know? Let's get some kind of deal. But I'm, you know, I'm a G-Mouse 1P, right? I'm a chicken skin garlic, you know, chicken feather garlic skin. I, you know, nobody cares what I say. So you're saying so no, no... No new deal is coming. I don't think so. Yeah. David, I, before I raise my question, I want to share my experience with you. 
just several days ago. Keep it short, if you can. Introduce him. And introduce yourself. Yes, I'm Ming Kuang. It's wrong twice. Permission. Yes. Here. Okay. Okay. Uh, several days ago, I pay a visit to Gatis. The, the, the famous battlefield where the American Civil War And here, uh, I asked a question to my to our guide, uh, General Robert Lee. He didn't support the slavery, but he became the commander of the Southern of the Confederates. I asked the guy why. He said, he told me that at that time, uh, most most Southerners they thought themselves as as someone of the state, not the Union. Then after four years civil war. and after many decades of development, I think now most of the Americans, they, they never thought that I'm, I'm, I'm someone of New Yorkers, I'm someone of Boston, and I am a citizen of America. So I asked him, what if the Civil War was failed? And what if the Southerners became independent? He gave me the answer. So that's my so that's just my experience there, and it's given me. So, so translate that for everybody into the current Hong Kong situ- so mainland situation for us. I maybe I think one China. I think it's a it's the basic line. Yes, maybe. So now I'm on. I want to raise my question. Sure. So well, mail folding. Yes. <laughs> See, but you're making a statement that may not be based on a public survey, right? I mean, that's why I do, most people... Yeah. Well, I, I don't disagree with you that people in general in Hong Kong care about economic development. Go ahead. That's, I think that's a fair statement. Have different no, no, that's a fair yes. statement. Yes. I think if you yes. did a survey, you would, you would be correct. Yes. Um, but what's the problem? I mean, economically, problem for Hong Kongers. I noticed some surveys, not only to Hong Kong, but on, but to many, many different areas, both in China and in and in other countries. Sure. In the past twenty years, maybe uh, there's a trend of globalization, and it, right. and, and I think the economic situation of the world. Of the young people of the world, particularly, but now we know the forty and fifty year olds. Go ahead. I mean, the economic situation varies a lot. In uh, Hong Kong, yes, Hong Kong is very rich at the time. I, I, I mean, in nineteen seventies or maybe nineteen eighties. But after that, after that, with the globalization of the of the world, it changed a lot. And with China's open open door. Open the policies. Yes, I think Hong Kong. So, so what's the question? I think uh, you just mentioned the economic situation. Maybe some kind, some kind of uh, income, income, income inequality. Yes, income increasing in Hong Kong is not is not so high as in mainland China. But I, okay, may I think increase. it's not a problem of 
one country to system, but maybe some some factors well, we should examine about globalization, about what we will help Hong Kongers to find their uh, go find the status in the globalization. Okay, so 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 my answer to that is I don't disagree with you at all that what's happening in Hong Kong could be seen to have happened in Tunisia, right? The Arab Spring to a certain extent, right? Young people finding that their salaries aren't going up and you can say it's responsible, it's part of the problem is globalization. So that doesn't mean, I'm not saying that the necessarily the problems in Hong Kong are the responsibility of the central government. I didn't, I, I didn't say that. Where they do see the link though is that the people who have governed either, it, and particularly Don, during the, the years of Donald Zung, right, Zung Yintran, right, in those years, inequality grew dramatically. Economic, China boomed, Hong Kong is not poorer than it, certainly not poorer than it was 10 years ago. It's still, you know, richer, there's lots of money in the, in the treasury, right, it's a wealthy place still, but when young people look at the leadership of Hong Kong, which is the leadership that is strongly supported by the central government, it's, they say that government, those leaders, don't care about us. Right? They don't care about our problems. They don't care. They don't, they, they're not putting out more public housing, right? which we could then move into. Right? And, and why? because the government of Hong Kong is captured by the business elite of Hong Kong. It's dominated by the business elite. And the democratic process that the central government has supported and the ruling group that it supports in Hong Kong is a group that has not taken steps to resolve those economic problems. So when the young people look at the situation in Hong Kong, they will say, we've got an economic problem, we could solve a lot of those problems, and Beijing is willing to, has done a lot, I don't, you know, the special, the, the SIPA, right, the, the uh, economic opportunities that Hong Kong people got, the, the use, I mean, there's a lot of things that the central government has done. Right? But one thing it hasn't done is it hasn't allowed the people of Hong Kong to influence the election of the people who rule Hong Kong in a way that would make them improve the economy of Hong Kong. So there's the, there's the Maodun, right? So, so it's not that the go central government in Beijing is trying to hurt the people of Hong Kong or try and make life difficult for the economy in Hong Kong, but by trying to make sure that the people who govern Hong Kong are their people, they put in power people who are not willing to solve the social economic problems of Hong Kong. Steve, any questions you want to raise? Or we can talk afterwards. Or, or comments? Steve, any comments you want to make or questions? Personally, I think that the the biggest mistake we made in Hong Kong was by Tung Chi Wah when he messed up the, the public housing situation mm. and then basically scrapped the construction of new housing and the formation of new land. 
And Donald Jones, as chief executive, did nothing to reverse that. Nothing. And it was only when uh, CY Learned came in that he that he made an effort to to uh, reverse the situation. Well, he certainly talked about it, which is one of the reasons why people were very pleased. CY got a lot of support from a lot of liberal people initially because he talked about the housing problem. He's had, you know, he has addressed the situation, but you can't just create land overnight, you know, particularly when you do reclamation. Oh no, there's lots of land. There's 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 acres and acres and acres owned by the developers, and they're holding it to keep the price up. So that's it. Really, is not a shortage. There's, they could, if they wanted to. There's lots of land out there that's already ready for development that the, that the business, the developers are holding back. We can have a debate about sure. the, the, the availability of that and private land rights and, and all the rest of it. Sure. But uh, certainly I, my own view is that if Harry Lamb can uh, make a success of uh, reverting to a, a housing program, something like we had in the 90s, then that will go a long way to addressing um, young people's concerns. And, and I would hope that people who are attending this, who actually work for the Chinese government, would send back that message very clearly that housing, and that gotta gotta get carry and help carry in some way to get that to happen. And one of the ways you do that is you have to squeeze the property developers, you know, you got to do it. Singapore is a stable society. Why is it stable? It's stable because people have housing. It's a terrible thing when you don't have housing, right? And you have no prospect of housing, and we're going to see it all around the world. On the other hand, some of young Hong Kong young people's expectations are crazy. Sure. You know, two years ago, there were 21-year-olds still at university, hadn't even graduated complaining that they couldn't afford to buy their own apartment as soon as they graduated. I don't know where in the world you can do that. Sure. So, so yeah, you know, this isn't, and, and my point really is that this, you know, why I, I said to Steve, one of the reasons I like to do this is because I get really frustrated when I see the I Hate China Committee in Washington, um, uh, you know, have, bring in people who will only tell one side of the story, right? I think there's two sides to this story. I've always been that kind of person, right? And I think it's really important to tell both sides of the story so that the two sides then find a way to sit down and solve the problem. Yes, sir? I'm Bill Armbruster, retired journalist. Is there much homelessness in uh, Hong Kong? Not much, but you do have, first of all, you have a million working poor. So a million people who go, you can check this data. There's a guy at Hong Kong U, I have to remember his name, who does a lot of research on this. There are a million people who go to work every day in Hong Kong just to be poor. Uh, there are 100,000 people who live in those boxes, right? I'm sorry? The cages. There are about 100,000 people who live in cages. Uh, there are people on the streets, but it's not a... You don't see it as a problem. It's not like New York. Yeah. It's not like most cities. I mean, you know, downtown Toronto, uh, with a socialist, quote unquote, more socialist government than the U.S. Um, uh, but uh, that's not that's not a problem. Thank you so much. <laughs>